The contradiction was horrific. In his book, Christ and the Meaning of Life, the German theologian Helmut Thelicke tells the story of a young soldier who reached out to pick up a bouquet of lilacs that sat on the ground, dozens of velvety, pinkish-purple flowers bunched up against the lush, limey green foliage. And as he reached down and picked up the, 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 the bouquet of lilacs beneath it was the rotting corpse of the soldier decaying beneath the bush. Thelica writes, he drew back in horror, not because he had never seen a dead man before, he was a soldier. He drew back because of the screaming contradiction between the dead man and the flowering bushel of flowers. Thelica notes that the soldier's reaction would have been different if the man had come upon a dead and faded lilac bush instead. He writes, a blooming lilac bush will one day become a withered lilac bush. This is really nothing more than the operation of the rhythm of life. But that a man should be lying there in a decayed condition, this was something that simply did not fit. And that's why he winced at the sight of it. We modern humans try to hide from death. When a loved one dies, we used to lay them out on the dining room table for three days to make sure they didn't wake up. We called it awake. Today, instead, we have their bodies rushed out of the room as quickly as possible and sent off to somebody who will preserve them and pickle them and paint them and, and style their hair and dress them and make them appear as if they're merely sleeping. We tell ourselves that death is only natural, a part of the, the normal cycle of life. We then anesthetize our souls to its reality through pleasure or through busyness so that we don't have to, to face the fear of impending death. We can block out the thought of the inevitable that all of us ultimately end up in the ground or in an urn. We say we're not afraid of death, but our actions belie that reality. We're not were we not afraid of death, we wouldn't have to sanitize it. We wouldn't make it invisible. We wouldn't hide it. We wouldn't pretend that it's not there. The fact that we don't even realize we're doing this suggests that our fear of death, far from being absent, is actually present as a silent, powerful, dominating force within our lives. The fact that we don't realize it's controlling us tells us that we're under its power. But we fool only ourselves. Real death is like that decomposing body of a soldier underneath that flowering lilac bush. It should startle us because the Bible says that humanity was created to live with God in perfect knowledge and righteousness and holiness, naked and unashamed in the garden, humanity flourishing forever. And then our first parents rebelled against God and declared our independence. And sadly, we don't each get to start out in the garden again. We start out fallen, liable to death, and if we make it out of the womb, and if we make it past childhood, we may at best live a hundred years if we're truly among the blessed. Death is an enemy. It's an unnatural separation of the soul from the body, two things that were never designed or intended to be separated. Humanity wasn't intended to die. The Bible calls death an invader. And the author to the letter of the, 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 to the Hebrews shows us how the most ancient faith, 
a faith grounded before creation in the relationship between God the Son and God the Father, how that eternal faith, that ancient faith, speaks to that fear of death that even we moderns have to admit is palpable. This is Hebrews chapter 1. The first three verses we'll read again, and then we'll skip to chapter 2, picking it up with verse 5. This is God's Word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the exact radiance of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It is not to angels God has submitted the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I put, will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What do we see here? First, we see humanity's bondage. It's called a bondage to death. The, the word used here is slavery. The, word you, the phrase used here is the power of death. We are all under the power of death. It has us in bondage. We have no freedom or power over it. At best, we can delay it. We can never prevent it. The death rate for humanity is still 100%. And every one of us is born to die. I remember the first time watching a person die. You know, they had been so alive the previous weekend. Um, 
And then I saw them. And I watched as the little pinpoints of red popped up on their body as their capillaries burst. I watched as their skin, starting in their hands and feet, turned purple and blotchy. And then as their skin, as they began breathing much more infrequently, I watched as skin turned from a, a normal color to a bluish color, a, a pinkish color, a yellowish color, a whitish color, and then they were gone. It's not right, but it's what we all face. And because of that, we're also in bondage to fear, not only to death, but to fear. Uh, it speaks here of, of freeing those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Fear is that dread of the oncoming thing. Fear can sometimes be at the front of your attention when your hands are, are sweating and your, your forehead is wet and you're trembling and you're shaking and you're stuttering and you can't get a word out. But fear can also be a silent presence, always with you, always operating in the background. You just can't turn it off. It's always there wherever you go. It will find you out. And the fear of death is as old as humanity ever since we lost the garden ever since our relationship with God became one that's adversarial in the garden. In the third century before Christ, the Chinese emperor Chen Shi Wang, the first emperor of the Chen dynasty, spent his entire life seeking an elixir of life, something that would help him to cheat death, something that would enable him to continue living forever. So great was his fear of death as he entered middle age that, 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 that Chen Shi Wang became obsessed with finding a potion of immortality. And so he set to work all of his alchemists and, and his doctors and his, his courtiers and courtesans and, and had them devote day and night to finding an elixir to give the emperor eternal life. Many of these potions contained what they knew as quicksilver, which is mercury. And the irony is that slowly the emperor died of mercury poisoning sooner than he would have in his quest to cheat death. We'll do anything to avoid death. In the 1300s in Europe during the Black Death, people didn't understand about bacteria. And even if they had understood about bacteria, they had no access to antibiotics. And so they would rub vinegar and garlic all over their body before interacting with somebody who's sick or deceased in a hope that, that it would uh, hold off death and contagion. They engaged in bloodletting in the hope of expunging the bad humors. Leeches were applied to their bodies to drain and suck out blood. Live chickens would be strapped onto wounds in order to, to hopefully get the death to go out of the wound and into the chicken. Human feces would be rubbed on the pustules. Others would whip themselves on their back, hoping that their humility would force God's hand to relent the oncoming death. Death brings about it all sorts of fears, fear of the unknown. For those of us who maybe have a little bit of control issues, it's the absolute loss of control over which we have no leverage whatsoever. Some of us fear the pain and the suffering that go into the process of dying. Others fear those that they leave behind or they fear punishment beyond the grave as every near-death experience is not a positive experience. For me, it was always the fear of non-existence. As an atheist kid, I remember I was probably 13 years old and I would 
try not to fall asleep at night because I was afraid that if I fell asleep that I would never wake up. I would die in my sleep and I would not be at my own funeral and I would not know that I had ever died because I would have ceased to be. Um, it's a heavy burden for a 13-year-old. You know, some researchers argue that the fear of death underlies most, if not all, human phobias. It's crippling. We see humanity's bondage to death and fear of death. And related to that, we see our bondage to supernatural evil. You know, it it's, sounds strange to us moderns when the author of Hebrews talks about him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. You know, we tend to roll our eyes at talk of evil inside of us, and particularly about an actual entity, the devil. Um, some hostile, malignant, hating God, angelic creature that we can't see usually. You know, we think our perspectives are more sophisticated today, but, but, but are you not familiar with the voice in your own head? The voice that tempts you right at that point of greatest weakness. The voice that accuses you at your point of greatest shame. That tells you you're unlovable. That tells you the gospel's not true. Do you not think that there could be an intelligence somewhere lurking in the distance that knows just which buttons to push to make the fear and the shame inflame and surround you? NPR's show, The American Life, once featured an episode called The Devil Inside Me. The show asked various people, and this is public radio, if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. According to the show's host, it was like people had been waiting all their lives for someone to ask them this question. Here were some of the responses to the NPR interviews. One man says, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another man says, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm the thrall of that voice. One woman says, it's totally out of control. It's got this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. One woman says, I actually have a name for that voice. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have an extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. One man says, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, to every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes anymore. And it's like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is it. A woman who had just got engaged hears the voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take that ring back because he's going to find out the truth about how much you suck, and so you better distract them with a really thin body. At the end of the episode, the host asks someone, do you feel like the voice is winning? And the woman replies, right now, yeah, I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. It's an honest answer. There's a devil within. But what if that voice has a reality external to you, what if there are intelligences beyond what we can see, intelligences that, that know just which fears to stoke, just which insecurities to fire up, just which shame will make you most want to die? 
What if that intelligence, that entity can take your fear of failure, your fear of rejection, and ultimately your fear of mortality, and take that and bind you up in a knot of anxiety and stress and fear and bondage? That's the voice Jesus came to set you free from. That's the power that Jesus came to destroy, that he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is, destroy the devil, destroy death, and liberate you from the fear that enslaves us. We do see humanity's bondage here, but we also see something else. We see a God who became human in order to free us from that very bondage. The Son was always God. You know, there's no way a first century Jewish reader within their world of discourse could have read these words and not understood the very clear statement that Jesus, before his incarnation, was God the Son. He speaks here of the Son whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. That is the voice of God that speaks, the words of God that come out and, and create. The Son of God, he writes, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It's shocking words for a first century Jew where they would not even name God. They would not even use his name out of fear of idolatry. And here they're saying there is one also who is God. We know him as Jesus sustaining all things by his powerful word, the power behind the cosmos. And yet this God the Son took our shared humanity in order to free us. He writes, since the children have flesh and blood, he shared their humanity. Think about that. Jesus shared our humanity that he might free us who were held all our lives in slavery by the fear of death. Consider what it means that God became human. God the Son would so voluntarily limit himself as to become an embryo and then a fetus in a human womb. That God the Son would have his diaper changed. That the creator of the cosmos would go through puberty to live under all the limitations of his human form. It leaves us asking so many questions and yet, and yet this humiliating thing that God did by becoming human for our sake, he did to save us, to set us free from death and the one who holds its power, and from our fear to bring freedom from bondage. Do you know what it's like to be released from bondage, to get out of jail? What's it like to walk free again after years behind bars? Lee Horton and his brother Dennis know that feeling. They were convicted of robbery and murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole, and they always maintained their innocence. And a few years ago, after having been locked up for more than a quarter of a century, these two men were granted clemency and released. Here's how Lee Horton tells his story. I'm going to tell you honestly, the first thing that I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car, I realized that I wasn't handcuffed. For all the time I'd been in prison, for 25 years, every time I was transported anywhere, I always had handcuffs on. And that moment right there was the most emotional moment that I've ever had. Even when they told me that the governor had signed the papers, it didn't set in until I was in that car and I didn't have handcuffs on. He continues, I don't think people understand that the punishment is being in prison. When you take away everything, everything becomes beautiful to you. When we got out, we went to the DMV. for That's what 49 states call the License Bureau, for those of you from Missouri. 
when we got out of the Department of Motor Vehicles, when we got to the DMV to get our licenses back, my brother and I stood in line for two and a half hours, and, and we heard all the bad things about the DMV, but we, we had the most beautiful time there, and all the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing, and they couldn't understand why we were so happy, and it just was that. Just being in that line was a beautiful thing. Freedom. He was in awe, he continues, of everything around me. It's like my mind was just heightened to every small nuance, just to be able to look out of a window, to be able to walk down a street, to be able to inhale fresh air, to see people interacting. It woke something up in me, something that I don't know if it died or if it just went to sleep. I've been having epiphanies every single day since I've been released. One of my morning rituals every morning, he says, is I send a message of good morning, good morning, good morning, and have a nice day to every one of my 42 contacts. And they're like, how long can I keep doing this? But they don't understand that I was deprived. And now it's like I've been released and I've been reborn to a better day, into a new day, a new life, like the person I was no longer exists. I've stepped through the looking glass onto the other side, and everything is beautiful. Can you see it? Can you feel that kind of freedom? For those of you who came to Jesus as adults, and there are quite a few of us around here, um, do you remember what bondage felt like? Do you remember the release of being new in Christ, of first really getting the gospel? And realizing that your sins are forgiven, that God is pleased with you because of Jesus, that he's your dad, not some angry ogre shaking his stick at you, and your future is certain. Do you remember what that freedom felt like? To free us, God the Son became human, so we might live free from bondage. Indeed, it's Jesus here didn't just become human, he became the ideal human. That's the point of this reference to Psalm 8, which is what... what the author of Hebrews is here quoting where he says, there's a place someone said, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. Uh, you, you made him a little lower than angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And, and, and here we see Jesus, he says, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. What he's doing here is he's referencing Psalm 8, which is about humanity being created by God and, and, and in wonderment, being puzzled and wondered and amazed by how much God has loved humanity. And even though we're so small, he put us just a little lower than the angels. And, and here he's presenting Jesus as that in ideal form, as the perfect human, the ideal human, the second Adam who, who stood up to fight our battle for us when we were already defeated. Uh, second Adam, ideal human in solidarity with the human race, fulfilling through his human life, human death, and subsequent exaltation, humanity's own mission on earth. The perfect human whose exaltation to the heavenly realm is ultimately what will restore humanity's exaltation to the heavenly realm. Here we see humanity's bondage, and yet we also see the Son of God becoming human to set us free from that very bondage. Here we see, finally, a God who suffers for us. We see a suffering God as our champion. We read that Jesus suffered death, the Son suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and upon the cross. And his death secured our eternal life. 
He says, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus, by his perfect death, he outdied every death. Uh, by his perfect death, uh, he outdied all death. He outdied death itself, and only as a human could he have done this for us, and thereby to rise up as our champion, defeating our enemy for us and setting us free. You know, only a suffering God can speak to our longings as a fallen people who experience suffering. We read that it was fitting that God, through whom everything was made and exists, should make the author of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through his suffering. You know, when we suffer, very often there's that voice in our head that says, the gospel's true for everyone but you. God wouldn't let you go through this if he loved you. God must hate me. He must despise me. I must have done something that would make him hate me. And it's somewhere where most of us go there at some point in our life. I have certainly said, God, why do you hate me? And then later repented of that. But it was, he, he's, he can handle it. You know, he wants us to process stuff with him in prayer. Uh, and, and yet, of all the possible reasons why suffering befalls us, and we, we don't always know. We know that suffering came about because humanity's uh, uh, liability to death because of our broken relationship with God, and yet we don't always know why specific things are happening to us, and, you know, is this God's fatherly discipline? Is this, you know, just the uh, world has fallen stuff in it? But of all the possible reasons why you are going through a time of tears and pain and sorrow and grief, of all the possible reasons that might be true, Jesus' death and suffering on the cross rules out exactly one of those. And it's the voice that says, God hates me because God himself chose to suffer for you. He chose to die for you, to be abused for you, to be humiliated for you. And because of that, this means that for God, the way up is now down. It's the great reversal. Jesus is exalted precisely because he was humiliated. Our champion, Jesus, whose self-sacrificial love redefines what true greatness is. God, you know, united to humanity in the person of Jesus, defeated death, fear, and even the devil in order to set his captives free. In the early morning hours of May 21st, 2019, the earth trembled, the earth itself trembled in its orbit, setting off gravitational instruments all the way around the globe. Researchers scrambled to make sense of the massive vibrations. It was the largest cosmic bang humanity had ever observed. Uh, scientists soon identified the cause, the cosmic wave that created an earthquake in the truest sense of the term, that shook the cosmos was a cosmic wave triggered by a spinning black hole 100 times the mass of the sun crashing into another black hole that was slightly smaller at 60 times the mass of the sun. Astronomers believe the crash had taken place between 4 and 7 billion years ago, long before Earth was formed. The wave had taken that long to reach us. The event which was announced in physical review letters, which is where I get all my illustrations, is 
by far the biggest bang ever detected by humans. In a fraction of a second, the merging black holes released roughly eight times more energy than that contained within our own sun's atoms. It released this power in the form of gravitational waves. That amount of energy, it's the equivalent of setting off more than a million billion atomic bombs every single second for 14 billion years. It shook the fabric of space itself. In the weeks following this massive gravitational tremor, scientists observed a follow-up stunning flare of light reaching us from the same region of space. It was impossibly bright. The brightness of astronomical objects typically has an upper limit known as the Eddington luminosity, which is the brightest thing at the brightest moment in the sky that can be seen anywhere is that level, Eddington luminosity. And one study claimed that the black hole had a luminosity 100,000 times that maximum luminosity. Scientists are still debating how to understand the event, and my PhD is in historical theology, so take this for what it is. But nothing, we thought, escapes from a black hole. A black hole can swallow a planet. A black hole can swallow a star. And yet this black hole just unleashed all of this gravitational energy and more light than humanity had ever seen in all of existence. A black hole can swallow a solar system. Its gravitational pull is so massive that nothing can escape it. Once pulled into its event horizon, there's no escape. Nothing that enters the event horizon of a black hole has any hope of ever escaping. Light cannot escape. Information cannot escape. Everything that enters a black hole is there forever, never to be freed, never to be unleashed, never to see daylight again. It's like that sign that Dante pictured over the gates of hell saying, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And friends, that's what death is. Death is a black hole that eats life, human life, animal life, plant life, everything, everything that's alive. The, it's a black hole that just devours it. And once you cross that event horizon, you will never get out again. We don't have all these people who have come back from actual true full death to tell us what it was like. The grave never tires of its victims. Billions of souls have passed into the great unknown ahead of us. It's a hungry black hole of death consuming everything. But what if God, in his wisdom, hurled an even more massive black hole into that black hole of death? What if God himself, eternal, infinite, immeasurable, God himself crossed that event horizon, the larger mass spinning into the smaller one, and what if that collision between those two black holes, God the Son going to the hole of death, caused an eruption of light, an eruption of information, an eruption of life to burst forth out of death, set free, unleashed, liberated from the fear of death, an imaginable unimaginable, immeasurable blaze of light and life escaping from the vortex of death. Friends, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. What if that cosmic Christ himself is the destroyer of death, the larger mass, the more powerful black hole that goes into death and explodes the whole thing out, setting captives free by hurling himself into death? God the Son unleashed the quantum forces that brought about the death of death in the death of Christ. 
It's what theologians of another era speculated as being the harrowing of hell. The God-man Jesus enters the grave and sets captives free. Death could not hold him because he was the more infinite mass. And when he returned alive forever, he came transformed and with the promise that if you follow Jesus, you too shall rise. When you give up your last breath, when you go unconscious one more time, the promise of Jesus, if you have me, you will rise again. And I will be waiting for you on the other side with all of my family. Jesus has devoured death. He sets captives free. He clothes us in immortality and eternal life because he defeated death for us. Jesus devoured the grave, triumphing over death. He's burst the event horizon in a flare so great that all the cosmos will see it. God the Son became human, taking on our nature, and submitted to death and rose again so that we could be free from the bondage of fear. Jesus, our champion, Jesus, our victor, Christ, our cosmic hero, who has achieved the victory and vanquished death and who will return at the end of the age to finish what he has started. Friends, let's pray.